Hello, my name is EJ Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor for AdAge, and welcome to the AdLib Podcast, weekly discussions with newsmakers in the marketing, media, and agency industries. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about some of the hottest legal topics in the ad industry. To help us navigate is Linda Goldstein, one of the most respected ad lawyers in the country. Linda is a partner at Baker Hostetler and regularly provides advertising counsel and regulatory advice to Fortune 500 companies across multiple industries, including telecommunications, retailing, publishing, entertainment, and food and beverage. On the podcast, we talk about what is going on with sponsorship contracts for events that have been canceled or postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic. We also talk about how DTC brands need to be careful about making guarantees about shipping. And she gives her perspective on how the FTC has operated under the Trump administration and how things could change if Democrats take control. And now, my conversation with Linda. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the AdLib podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I like to have you on our podcast from time to time to get an update on the world of advertising law and what ad lawyers are are talking about. Um, I think the last time you joined us on one of our podcasts was way back in 2019, and certainly the world looked a lot different back then. Um, but in terms of the issues that that lawyers are talking about right now, I wanted to start with, I think, is an important one. And that is what the heck is going on with the sponsorship deals that have been, you know have been in place and for sporting events, entertainment events, and obviously a lot of stuff has not happened since March. And um, you know we've written a little bit about this on AdAge, but wanted to get, get the current state of play when it comes to a legal perspective. Are you hearing a lot of brands trying to get out of these deals, and what does that take to do that? Sure. So it's it's a great question, and you know, as as a lawyer, uh, I I would say what's most interesting about this is I think the days of thinking about force majeure clauses as quote unquote boilerplate are gone forever. Um, in my entire career, I've never had as many questions as I have in the last three to four months. And about, if I could interject quickly, just for the uninitiated, what is a force majeure clause? Sorry about that. So <laughs> the force majeure clause is the standard, now maybe not so standard, clause in a contract that is actually for the protection of both parties to the contract. And essentially, what the force majeure clause lays out are circumstances generally considered to be beyond the control of the party that make the performance of the contract by a party impossible. So, for example, if, uh, and as has been the case, if, if a company now had a sponsorship agreement to sponsor an event, and the event was canceled, um, the brand would probably, you know, want their money back. Uh, similarly, the, the venue or the operator of the event would say, I can't perform the contract. It's a force majeure. 
So I'm not really responsible to you for anything. Um, that's just a, a simplistic overview of the force majeure. It's basically the right of a party to get out of the contract because some circumstances beyond their control make it impossible for one or in some cases both parties to perform. Where it's gotten really interesting um, in the context of the, the, the ad world is in, in some cases, the application of the force majeure clause may be, you know, it may be really simple. Um, if, if it was a sponsorship of an event and under the, you know, government restrictions, the event can't take place, then obviously there is an impossibility to perform. But not all force majeure clauses are created equal and not all factual situations are created equal. So let's say, take as another example, um, the event can happen or the event is gonna happen virtually that you sponsor, that, that the brand is sponsoring, but it's not really what the brand bargained for. They weren't intending to sponsor a virtual event, or they don't think they're going to get the benefit of the bargain uh, that they negotiated for. And then it's going to depend very much on actually what does the contract say? Because the force majeure clauses tend to range from the very general to more specific. Uh, they are interpreted differently by different courts in different states. So what might happen in that situation would depend on the language of the clause. Did it say it has to be impossible to perform or did it just say it may not be practical to perform or it may not be able to perform as, you know, as set out in the contract? And then what state? Of law, you know, what's the state law that governs, which again, historically has been thought of or relegated as one of those standard boilerplate clauses that companies sometimes don't pay attention to, but I think from mm -hmm. now on they will pay a lot of attention to that. And the other thing that I think this is just, I would say, a word of caution to companies entering into contracts now. Many of these clauses only apply if the event that occurred was unforeseeable. Uh, the argument that a pandemic in the future is an unforeseeable event is probably not gonna gain a lot of traction. So I think companies really need to be thinking now about how they approach these clauses in the future. But in terms of what we're actually seeing, we, we have not seen any litigation yet um, arising from these agreements, but we've seen a lot of negotiation. And the practical mm -hmm. side of this is, you know, in many cases, these are parties that have had a relationship for a long time. Um, or it's a, even if it's a new relationship, it's one that the brand at some point is, is going to want to continue and not see it go to someone else. So where possible, we've generally found that these situations have been 
negotiated, if the event is being postponed, the, the, the fees are being applied to the next year's event. Um, there are a lot more caveats uh, that we're putting into these negotiations now about, um, you know, if it can't occur as planned or um, a right to pull out sooner if it looks like, you know, there's a big difference in an event that's been postponed, let's say, to next March versus an event that's postponed, you know, to next August or September. Uh, and, and so kind of the right to pull the plug uh, is important, even if the event is postponed. But for the most part, we're seeing uh, the parties negotiate something that works for both sides. And the other thing is that, you know, there are where, where I think a lot of litigation will occur and, and there will be litigation is on the insurance side. And, you know, depending on the nature of the insurance that the, um, you know, that the, the, the operator or the, or the venue has, uh, whoever, you know, contracted for the event, they are putting in the claims by droves. And uh, that's going to raise some interesting questions. Most of the insurance is characterized as business interruption insurance. Um, although in some cases there may be specific insurance relating to the event. Um, but I think that's where a, a lot of the litigation will actually happen. But the brands and the IP owners, they're, from my perspective, they're, they're really trying to work that out. So what, is, what are the odds that I'm just off the top of my head thinking about CAN, right? A huge advertising event, um, something like that. Would that have insurance typically? That, you know, obviously that didn't happen this year. Or just to pick a hypothetical example. I would, I would, I would think that they would. Yeah. I mean, most events do carry insurance. The question is, what is it insuring against? How much is the coverage? Um, and 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 what are the triggers? For yeah, the I mean, is it is the pandemic part of the like what what's your take so far? Are people able to? make the case? Um, we've seen a fair number that actually have where they've, you know, talked about, um, they may not have used the word pandemic, but um, something synonymous to pandemic. It's really kind of been all over the map, to be honest. Um, some have specifically referred to it, some have not, um, but some are so broadly worded that they would likely cover a pandemic. Yeah. You know, I think the as I say, I think when we're talking about sponsorship of events, um, you know, these events can't occur. Where we've seen, you know, the discussion be a little bit more interesting is we we have had situations where brands are looking to cancel media buys because you know, the messaging that they had in the can doesn't seem appropriate at this time, or they just don't feel that the audience is going to be particularly receptive um, to their advertising messages. And that's a case where, you know, from the standpoint of the media, the media is there and the media has been bought and those, you know, those spots can air. So there's not an impossibility of performance. There's a certainly a change in circumstance um, where it may not be as desirable. Uh, but that's a, that's a harder one um, 
for the brands to push on. What are you hearing there? What's what's happening in those Again, cases? Again, I think in in most cases, um, you know, we've we we've seen some, you know, um, you know, letters crossing crossing paths that you know are 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 somewhat aggressive, but. Again, in the end, at least from our experience in in terms of you know the situations that we've been working with, in most of these cases, it, it, it's being negotiated, yeah. or it, it may just be that right now there is an agreement to disagree in some cases as well. Do you think that there's an increasing chance that we'll start seeing litigation the longer this drags out? I mean, it's obviously the coronavirus is um, spiking again in, in a lot of part of the country in a big part of the country and um, it's just not going away soon. And each, you know, parties are, you know, money's tight. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely possible. And, you know, the one area where there has been some interesting litigation is um, there has been litigation filed against um, some of the theme parks, for example, where, you know, consumers have purchased an annual membership or, something on the representation that they can, you know, gain access to the park 365 days a year. There's been some litigation filed against some of the, you know, ticketing companies, um, you know, again, where the, where the event is being postponed, the, you know, the terms of service typically provide that your ticket will be valid for the postponed event. That's led to uh, some litigation. So, um, but we haven't we haven't seen it directly between the brands and the the owners. Now, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Marketing budgets are not what they used to be, but while resources may be tight right now, you can still get everything you need without breaking the bank with Shutterstock. Try Shutterstock with a one-month free trial at Shutterstock.com forward slash adlib to explore over 340 million images, videos, and music tracks to keep you on trend, on topic, and in the conversation. And with tools like Shutterstock Editor and free templates, you can create the perfect social post, marketing email, or digital ad in just 10 minutes. Try Shutterstock today and get 10 free images. To start, just visit Shutterstock.com forward slash AdLib. Before we get back to our conversation with Linda, here's a reminder that AdAge's annual 40 Under 40 feature is coming up. Don't forget to nominate your own rising stars for this year's list ahead of the August 5th deadline. Find more details at AdAge.com. So I have a few more topics I wanted to um, sure. ask you about. Um, there's something called the mail order rule. Um, and, and this is, again, something that I think is probably being triggered as a result of the uh, pandemic. And can you explain what this is and why it's sure. kind of in the news again? Yeah, so this is another one that is having a pandemic rebirth, I would say. Um, the, the mail, and it is, is now called the mail and telephone order rule, applies to mail, telephone, and the internet. Um, but it was originally uh, promulgated by the FTC many, many years ago to ensure that 
when companies make shipping promises, they keep those promises to consumers. And if they can't keep the promises, then they, on a, on a first delay, they have to provide the consumer with notice. And if the consumer doesn't respond, then it, it's sort of an opt-out. The consumer can cancel, but if they don't cancel, they're presumed to have consented to the shipping delay. If there's a second delay, it becomes an opt-in situation, and actually the merchant has to cancel unless the consumer has specifically opted into the delay. And the other important piece of the mail order rule is that if you do not specify a shipping date, then the law will presume that you are committed to ship within 30 days. And if you can't ship within 30 days, um, then you have to send these notices. Um, there has not been rigorous enforcement of the mail order rule, I'm going to say, in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, but obviously now, particularly with the pandemic and so much of the you know, retail shopping experience going online, um, shipping promises have become sort of a, a currency. I mean, they're, they've become an important marketing tech, you know, tool. Order your masks and, you know, you'll have them tomorrow. Um, I'm, I'm sure people have seen, you know, there are, there are many online retailers that are very prominently disclosing the fact that they're experiencing delays or they can't be responsible for delays. But there are many um, marketers that are also trying to use rapid shipping as, as a way to in, entice consumers to shop with them. And so recently, the FTC, after, I, again, I would say maybe 10 to 15 years of not seeing much enforcement, um, the, actually, I, I, I do, historically, I want to mention the last time we saw a lot of enforcement around the mail order rule was as online shopping began to really gain popularity. So we're going back a long way when, you know, online shopping started to become more popular. Uh, the first Christmas that that occurred, a lot of retailers, and these were all brick and mortar retailers that, you know, now had an, an online presence, a lot of them missed their Christmas shipping dates. And so um, the FTC at that time, they brought a whole slew of cases, but we really haven't seen much since. Um, back in April, the FTC brought a case against a company called Fashion Nova, which was an online retailer. Um, they were promising fast shipping. They were promising two-day shipping. Um, or sometimes they just made, you know, generic statements like, you know, get your items really quickly. Um, and the FTC uh, considered all of those uh, to be basically misleading because, in fact, they weren't able to ship for weeks. Uh, the FTC did receive a lot of complaints. And they entered into a settlement with them. The company had to pay $9.3 million. Mm -hmm. um, 
for violating the mail order rule because the mail order rule does uh, provide for civil penalties. Uh, and so that was a pretty hefty uh, penalty that the company had to pay. What I think is also interesting that I would I would tell the listeners to um, take note of is in the consent order that the that the FTC entered into with the company, they said that if the company doesn't specify how many days there it will take to ship, but they make these kinds of claims like it'll be quick or fast. They have to ship within one day of receiving the order. Um, And I think sometimes companies think, well, if I don't say anything um, and I just use generic language, you know, maybe I get my 30 days. And this really jumped out at me as sort of a message from the FTC that, no, if you tell people they're going to get it quickly and you don't specify a time frame, we're going to interpret that as being a really short time frame. and then this week, um, or actually last week, the FTC brought a second case um, against a company. Um, it's not surprising that this case was brought. It was a company called uh, Super Good Deals, and they promised next day shipping on masks and other PPE equipment. And in fact, they couldn't, um, they couldn't honor those shipping promises. This case is in litigation. The FTC actually filed the complaint against the company, and the U.S. attorney concurrently has brought a criminal case against the owner of the company for um, not just you know misleading shipping claims, but also for price gouging. So I, I'm sure we're going to touch on this, but it's it's just another example of how laser focused the FTC is on anything COVID related. Yeah. Let's talk about the FTC. Um, obviously, we're, we're in a Republican administration right now, um, which historically was is considered more business friendly, quote unquote. But um, what is the reputation of the FTC under the Trump administration? And how could that change potentially if there's a change of control in November. We have an election obviously coming up. So Yeah, that's a great question. It's a great question because historically the 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 thinking was that during a Republican administration you would have a more lenient, business friendly FTC and that during a Democratic administration you would have a much more consumer-friendly, consumer-focused, more aggressive FTC. We have often said to clients that actually we haven't found that it makes much of a difference, certainly in recent times. Most of the staff stays the same. Obviously, the leadership at the top changes. And I would remind people that it was during a Republican administration that the telemarketing sales rule and the whole do not call registry, all of that was implemented under a Republican administration. So the, the, the popular thinking in that regard isn't really accurate, but this particular commission has been, um, from my perspective, and I know it's shared by other colleagues who practice in this area, 
it has really been one of the most aggressive administrations we have ever seen, both in terms of the amount of the monetary judgments that they're seeking. Um, It's becoming uh, increasingly difficult to settle cases because the amounts of money that, that that the commission is looking for to settle cases is is easily in the you know seven to eight figures. Um, more aggressive enforcement procedures. Um, you know the FTC in very egregious cases can go in without notice to the other party, freeze all of their assets, um, and we're also seeing um, the FTC you know moving more into um, rulemaking. The FTC just announced that um, it is proposing a a new trade regulation rule for made in USA claims. Um, Historically, the FTC has dealt with misleading made in USA claims pretty informally at the beginning. They just would kind of call you in and you would get a closing letter saying you're going to make such and such changes if, if in fact, you aren't complying. And again, for, for listeners that don't know, um, the FTC currently has guidance on made-in-USA claims, which says that all or substantially all of the product has to have been both sourced and, you know, manu- basically made in the United States. Um, the, what the proposed rule would do is it would um, now provide for civil penalties, just like the mail order rule, the FTC would now be able to get civil penalties mm-hmm. for violations. So it's a, it's a, it's just an indicator of the, you know, I would say this administration's focus on, um, on the money, really, you know, trying to find mechanisms to get substantial monetary payments from companies. So, I think people might be surprised to hear this because this current president is one that can be influenced pretty quickly by a conservative media, which typically is going to make the case against this kind of heavy handed action by, by any kind of government agency. Why do you think that this FTC, are they just managing to uh, stay out of his sight or just do they have their own, you know, they, they sounds like they're operating pretty independently. They, 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 they do operate independently. Um, you know, again, it's interesting because um, Trump did issue an executive order earlier this year in which he said that agencies can't rely, you know, they really can't rely on guidance um, to pursue enforcement actions that if, if, in other words, if, if the FTC, let's say, has a guide, like the influencer marketing is all subject to FTC guides, um, the, the Trump order would say, if somebody violates those guides, that's not a basis for bringing an enforcement action against them. You have to give much more specificity to companies. So I, I would say that this administration is clearly um, at odds. Uh, this this this. FTC administration is clearly at odds with what would appear to be um, Trump's view of agency authority. 
Um, but I will say you also asked about, you know, what might happen that we can already see signs that if they're if the Democrats win in November, there will be a shift at the commission. So the balance of power will shift in favor of the Democrats. The chairman of the commission or chairwoman will be a Democrat. And the two Democrats that are currently on the commission have certainly given all indications that we are probably looking at an even tougher administration um, because we, we've seen them writing dissents in a number of cases, just like the Supreme Court, the commissioners can dissent from an opinion. Um, and there have been numerous cases, um, including the Facebook case, where you know the, the, the view of the dissenting commissioner was that $5 billion wasn't enough money. But there have been similar dissents in other cases as well. So um, if the Democrats win, I think we're, we, we actually may be looking at an even tougher FTC than we have now. So Linda, um, shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious to, to hear sort of how you got into advertising law in the first place. Um, I know you, you earned your degree from New York uh, University. Um, has, has, has the law always kind of been a, a passion of yours? And, and how did you end up in advertising law? So I, I ended up uh, as a lawyer, uh, I would say actually probably for maybe three reasons. One, I, you know, I wanted to pursue a professional career. Medicine was definitely out of the question because math and science are not my forte. I really wanted to be an actress. So, um, but unfortunately I lacked the talent to do that. Um, and so with law, I thought, well, I, at least, you know, you're doing a little bit of performing when you're in court or whatever. And I actually started my career as a, as a litigator and found that it was, you know, especially as a, as a young associate, it is, it's not a, a, a glamorous, uh, position and, um, not particularly exciting. You're, kind of pouring through documents most of the time. And I was approached and offered an opportunity. It was never in, on my radar um, to go in-house to at Young and Rubicon, which at that time was the largest advertising agency in the country. Um, and it just sounded really interesting. And I loved the work. I really, I, I loved interfacing with the creative folks. Um, and became really passionate about it and, and then decided um, that I wanted to go back out to a law firm um, that practiced advertising law. And that brought me to the first firm I was at, which was Paul Dickler. Uh, and then from there, I can honestly say it's it's been a real passion. I, I love what I do. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm sitting on the phone with clients and I just sit back and think, I'm really enjoying this conversation because most of the time we're creating something together. Um, this is an interesting question because obviously you're working with um, creative people and, you know, one of you, you talk to people that they talked about, Oh, getting it through legal, right. Kind of rolling their eyes, you know, may, but, but what makes a good ad lawyer, right? I mean, because you obviously want to make protect them 
but you want to make sure they they still have a freedom of expression, right? As they're yeah. putting together campaigns, what what's what is the secret? It's a great question, and I I think it I think the the secret it, it's two things, it's creativity and flexibility, and you know fundamentally you have to be on the same team as your clients. And so maybe it helped me that I did come from an environment, you know, I came from an agency where I learned a lot, but legal legal wasn't making the money for the company. So legal was viewed as the obstacle. And I was very sensitive to that. It's maybe one of the best things I learned being in-house. Um, so uh, when I went back into the law firm, I, you know, that, that was a, a, a primary uh, objective for me was to make sure that I listened to the clients, worked with the clients, tried to say no as little as possible. And rather than say no, to say, let's figure out how we can make this work to meet your goals and also meet legal objectives. And the ability to do that, I think, is a unique skill set. But in my opinion, it's it's the key to being an advertising lawyer. And I feel the, the pressure is um, on the clients and agency side is to do more and more in real time. And the idea of running something by a lawyer is it doesn't, it's not always, you know, it's not the fastest thing ever. So how have you had, have you had to adjust in, you know, in the age of of social media and just this quick, especially right now. I mean, we're seeing these campaigns turn around in a day or two because of just the need to respond to what's happening in the world. Um, how do you how do you approach that? You 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 have to be willing to be available almost twenty four seven. You really do because the dead the deadlines are real. Um, and so, you know, I I often joke. My husband is a litigator. And he has a very nice, neat schedule. He knows when he has to be in court. He knows when his papers are going to be due. I could be sitting at dinner and the phone rings and you got to take it. You, you, that, that's, that's just a part of the business. And, and how has your life your, changed under, uh, the, during the pandemic? I mean, I don't suspect you were in court a lot, but um, are you doing more and more just video conference calls now versus in person? Yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, the thing I miss the most is the, is the human interaction. Um, we're on, we're on video and that's nice, but, uh, I miss getting on a plane and visiting with my clients or being in person at meetings you know, that I think that human interaction is a very big part of being an advertising lawyer. And that's probably what I miss the most. All right. Well, I want to thank you for your time. We, there's a lot of other topics we could yeah. go over, but I, hopefully we hit the big ones. Um, did it? Did there's anything I left out? No, no. We could go on for hours, but hopefully we'll do it again soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. That was Linda Goldstein, a partner at Baker Hostetler. My name is E.J. Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor of AdAge. I want to thank our producer, Max Sternlicht, and invite you to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite player. Catch you next time.